glad everyone is so excited to be here and to talk to each other and all that. So um, it's good to be here this morning and to be able to bring the word of God. Um, Our uh, text this morning is John chapter 15. So if you could turn in your Bibles with me to there, we finally made to chapter 15. How about that, huh? All right. You know, it's funny because usually... Uh, we start out by reading the scripture passage for, for the morning that we have at it. But uh, this morning, uh, I'm going to do things a little bit differently, and I'm going to read some different passages to you. Now, our passage this morning, uh, and the reason I do that is because it probably finds its roots in familiar Old Testament passages that use agrarian illustrations. Do I sound a little funny here? It sounds a little funny, huh? I, I could hear it myself. Um, and so um, here are some, uh, just a few passages. There's actually a bunch of them, but I, I, and, and I cut it down to two that have relevance for our passage here uh, this morning. So let me just read a couple of these and so you can kind of hear the imagery. Oh, I, I can't read that, huh? Look how tidy that is, huh? Okay, well, if you're younger, you probably can. If you're my age, you, you can't. But uh, anyways, uh, it, looks, it, it looks readable on my computer screen when I made this. But uh, anyways, let me read this to you from Ezekiel 15, 1 to 8. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood, the vine branch that is among the trees of the forest? Is wood taken from it to make anything? Do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. When the fire has consumed both ends of it, and the middle of it is charred, is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred, can it be used for anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord God. So here you're going to see some of the imagery in our passage that is set forth in this uh, Ezekiel 15 uh, passage. Uh, There's another passage, Isaiah 5. Look, you could read that one, huh? This one came out right. Isaiah 5. Um, This one has even more immediate relevance for our passage at hand. Look what it says here. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and placed it with choice vines. I planted it, I'm sorry, with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness. All right, so here, as you can see from the few passages that that, um, I read from above, Israel is often symbolized as a vine in the Old Testament. 
And when it is, and again, there's more passages than just these, it's for the purpose of condemning the vine's failure to produce fruit, and then, as as you read, God's consequent judgment is a result. And, And so, as I'll explain in just a moment, our passage, though, this morning isn't about the nation of Israel, but is instead about Christ and those who purport to be his disciples. Now, what we're going to see in the following passage this morning is something like an extended metaphor, maybe even somewhat parabolic in nature. In fact, some commentators just call it a parable uh, in order to communicate an important truth that the union between Christ and his children are very close and that fruitfulness in the life of the believer is the proof that he belongs to Christ. We'll also learn that not everyone who names the name of Christ or who looks like a follower of Christ is necessarily one. Every church will have examples of those whose union with Christ uh, is merely superficial. It's just for appearances only. And this church is no different. These false believers will eventually meet with God's judgment But for those who are true believers, God will work in their lives to bring about maximal fruitfulness. Now, this may come through some pain and difficulty, as we'll see this morning, but it will yield a harvest of fruit in the end. Now, the symbolism isn't too difficult to figure out. You know why? Because it's stated right here in the text. The vine dresser is God the Father. The vine is Jesus' son, and the branches are Jesus' disciples. So as we go through the passage here this morning, don't lose sight of the fact that the father is seen in his preeminent role as the master gardener. And thus, he is the ultimate authority. He's really the main player in this passage. He has the ultimate authority of both Jesus, the vine, and the disciples, the branches. And we'll look at that here in just a minute. Let's pray, though, and then we'll walk through the passage together. Heavenly Father, as we uh, look at this uh, important uh, section here in John chapter 15, we pray that it will uh, cause our hearts to think uh, about ourselves and about our relationship to you. And Lord, for those who are here this morning, pray that uh, you'll convict them to either bear more fruit in their pursuit of holiness by clinging to the vine or that they will repent and realize that they are not really a branch after all. Thank you, Father, for this time. We pray that it will it'll bear fruit in the hearts of our people. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, if you remember where we left off in the last message, which was actually about a month ago, uh, Jesus and his disciples have left the upper room, and are now on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Very close now, right, to the, to the crucifixion taking place. And they're on their way to the garden where the betrayal will first take place. Now, if this part, and this is interesting, if this part of the farewell discourse took place in the temple courtyard, guess what they would have saw hanging over the entrance of the temple. They would have saw a golden vine with large grape clusters hanging on it. You know, Jesus was often, um, did what I call occasional teaching. And what I mean by that is often the occasion where he was, what they were looking at, often set the tone for what he would speak about. And so as they're looking at the golden vine with the large grape clusters hanging on it, they would have then heard these words in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. We've already noticed the Old Testament precedent of using the vine imagery to represent Israel. And as we just read a few moments ago in Isaiah 5, Israel is pictured as a vineyard that the Lord planted and thus expected good grapes, but instead bad fruit. And as a result, God removed his protection and he cursed it instead for its unfruitfulness. 
Well, now, in contradistinction to the unfaithful vine, Israel, Jesus says he is the true vine, meaning the genuine or the real vine, the one who would produce the very fruit that the nation failed to bring forth. This fruitfulness is what will bring pleasure and glory to the vine dresser, his heavenly father. Now, we, we should pause and note, take note that even in extended metaphors like this one, where we're using figurative language, still the authority slash submission relationship between God the Father and his son Jesus are still retained in the, in the, in the um, metaphor. God the Father as the vine dresser is seen as the main player. The one who is in complete control over the vineyard, the vine and the branches in the narrative. This is the seventh and final I am saying of Jesus in the gospel of John, right? I am the true vine. Well, let's see what verse two says. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Let's take a moment to consider the significance of Christ's metaphor via the contrast he presents here. Now, in both examples, God the Father, the heavenly vine dresser, is the main actor, and in his role, he takes two decisive actions to ensure a maximum output of fruit. Now, this is absolutely necessary because, uh, and, and this is not because I've ever had a, a vineyard or anything like that, but, uh, you know, I, I read about this myself. You know, a vine that is left to itself will be unproductive, and, and thus intervention will be necessary in order for it to be productive. Now, before we look at these two actions, I think it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyways, uh, that the whole point of having a vineyard is to have what? An abundance of fruit, right? Otherwise, why would you go through all the trouble of having a vineyard if there's not going to be any grapes, right? It's a pain. So with that in mind, we can look at the vine dresser's action to ensure fruitfulness. Now, first thing he does, he decisively takes away or removes every branch that does not bear fruit. Now, I want you to think about the illustration from an agrarian point of view. What do you do with branches that are literally dead, not bearing any kind of fruit, but still connected to the vine? Well, Jesus says the vine dresser will cut off those dead branches and rid the vine of the dead wood. But on, and we'll come back to that in a second. But on the other hand, how does the vine dresser treat the branches that are bearing fruit? Well, he prunes those branches so that they may bear more fruit, meaning they will become even more productive in their fruit-bearing capacity. Now, that's so necessary because a vine that is left to itself will grow. But as I pointed out earlier, much of its growth will be unproductive. So pruning removes unnecessary growth from the branch, which will hinder it from being fruitful. And once this takes place, the branch will become even more fruitful than it was before. Well, what's the point of all this? Well, the point is, this is true of every believer's life as well. You realize every Christian needs also to be pruned. You can't be left alone to grow on your own or else your growth will be wildly unproductive, right? When we're left to ourselves, we become unbalanced. We become ungracious. We become judgmental. We become legalistic. We become overly critical. We become a lot of things that show that there is some kind of growth, but it's unproductive kind of growth. So it's not very difficult to see the point of the illustration. 
The main point that Jesus is making is that there is a marked difference between believers and unbelievers. There is no such thing as a true believer in Christ that does not have some measure of fruitfulness in his life. The presence of fruit is the evidence of life and what marks or identifies somebody as a true Christian. You know, this is the same point, by the way, that James makes in his epistle. You remember this in James chapter 2, 14 to 17? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Now, James introduces two kinds of faith in this passage, and uh, I I just want to introduce the idea here that the first kind of faith that he introduces is a says faith, meaning this is the all talk faith. I say I have all kinds of faith. I have the faith to move mountains. You say all kinds of glorious things about about yourself, but that's all it is. It's just talk. So James says, what good is it if someone has faith but doesn't have works? Notice what he says rhetorically. Can that faith save him? The question uh, isn't just rhetorical. The answer is implied in the way it's stated. Can that kind of faith, the faith that just talks but is devoid of works, can that kind of faith save a person? Implicit in the way that it's worded is the answer is no, it cannot. Now, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, right? So you you see somebody, you could tell he's poor. You could tell he doesn't have any money because his clothes are, you know, are are tatters. He he can't feed himself, right? So he's emaciated, he's skinny, right? And, uh, and one of you goes up to them, verse 16, and says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So you go up to that person who has these physical needs, poor, destitute, hungry, and you say, hey, you know what? Let me do something for you. Feel like you're warm and feel like you're filled with food. See ya, Right? James says, you know what? What good is that? That's just talk. You didn't really do anything. You just said something, right? That's the, that says faith. And look at the punchline in verse 17. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what kind of faith? Dead. That's faith, but it's a dead faith. It doesn't save anybody. Well, coming back to our Our point here, how could a true believer in Christ, connected to Jesus, the true vine, not receive the proper nourishment to bear fruit? That's an impossibility. And to say that such a thing can be true would be to call into question the credentials of Jesus as the true vine. How come he's not nourishing you? How come he doesn't bear fruit in your life? The reason a believer bears fruit in his life is not due to his own moral superiority, but due to the transforming power of Christ's grace. When Christ saves a sinner, he breaks the enslaving power of sin in his life, and then he puts his sanctifying spirit inside of him to transform him from the inside out, changing his desires and behavior So that he will be pleasing to Christ. That's why you bear fruit. It's because of him. Not because of us. That being said. There are those who look like branches in Christ. And yet bear no real fruit. Because they aren't really alive after all. In fact. One need look no further than Judas Iscariot. As a prime example of such a person. He looked like a branch. He he looked like he abided in the vine. He even had the title of an apostle. And yet, he was really a traitor. There may be some in our church right now who are faithfully attending, 
listening to the sermons in our church, even this one, giving their money, interacting with our people who will one day walk away from it all when things get too tough in their lives. Maybe a loved one will die. Maybe you will lose your job. Maybe you'll get really sick. Or someone of the opposite sex lures you away from your marriage and you turn your back on the faith that you once confessed. That person proves himself to be a dead branch and eventually the vine dresser will take it away. Well, if Judas was an example of the branch that is taken away by the vine dresser, certainly Peter was a vivid example of the branch that the vine dresser needed to prune. And as Peter learned the hard way, the father's work of pruning is beneficial, but it can also be very painful. You know, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 to 11, it says this, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you, not, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his, what? His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You know, uh, discipline can be either corrective, it could be educational, or it can be both. It can and will be painful. But the goal that God has in mind in so bringing that pruning about in our life is that we will share his holiness and bear more fruits of righteousness. So think about it. God's pruning is purposeful. Don't fight it. Submit to it and learn from it so that you might become more holy. Trials and difficulties are a means to God's ends in making you more fruitful for his kingdom purposes. All right, let's take a look at verse 3 there and following, verse 3 to 5. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now think of you're one of the disciples, you're sitting here, you're listening to this, right? And you're looking up at the vine and you're thinking, uh, you know, hearing some of these things, some of it frightening. And a word of assurance comes from Jesus that Hey, for you guys, you are already clean. In other words, you're saved. Okay? Look at the means whereby the disciples were made spiritually clean. Through Christ's word, having been believed and appropriated in their lives. This is really no different for us today. It is Christ's word that is responsible for converting souls and bringing people to salvation. The disciples, in contrast to the Jewish leaders, had believed in Jesus as their Messiah, the one who had the power and the authority to forgive them of their sins. And as a result, Jesus says to them, you are already clean. 
Now, with that said, that's not the end of the story. That's just the beginning of the relationship. There is now a call to abide in me and I in you. That's a significant idea, by the way, because it appears 10 times in these 11 verses. Do you think there's a point being made here? 10 times in 11 verses to abide in me. What does it mean then to abide? One of the top lexicons defines it this way. Figuratively, of someone who does not leave the realm or sphere in which he finds himself. So here's the definitions then. Remain, continue, abide. So the idea is probably a combination of loyalty, fellowship, and obedience to Jesus. I describe it this way. It's a clinging on to Jesus, a holding on for dear life, leaning all your weight upon Jesus. You know, this is our responsibility as our believers, to abide in Christ. You know, the reciprocal part of the statement, and I and you, is similarly Jesus' promise to never leave or forsake them, but to remain in fellowship with them. And this promise would continue even after Jesus returned back to heaven to be with his father as he promised, as you remember in the last message, to send them his spirit. So this functions as a promise to the believer. If you abide in me, I will continue to abide in you. And that essentially urging the believer, for all of us, persevere in your faith. Now, just so we're clear... This uh, doesn't contradict what the Bible teaches elsewhere, that a believer cannot lose his salvation. But it, it focuses on the believer's responsibility to abide in Christ. Okay? So, yeah, it's true. You can't lose your salvation. But it's also true. It's a command for you to abide in Christ. Yes, you must exercise your will and abide in Christ. It's a command given here. Now think about what Jesus is saying. No branch is alive all by itself. No branch is self-sustained. In order for it to receive nourishment, to live and bear fruit, it must have a vital connection to the vine. That's really self-evident, isn't it? Likewise, this is just as true so far as the believer is concerned. A Christian can only bear fruit insofar as he is fully dependent upon Christ. So there are really only two alternatives given in the passage. Either a branch remains in the vine and he bears much fruit, or it doesn't. Which means it's a dead branch and will eventually be thrown away and we'll find out it will be burned. But let's let's talk about the... uh, the positive side side of things first. If Christ is the vine and the believers are the branches, there will be fruitfulness in the life of the believer. Again, how can it not be the case? The fruit that Jesus talks about is the result of branches persevering in their faith, dependent upon Jesus, the vine. Now, as we say this, the obvious question that comes to mind is, what will this fruit consist of? What are we talking about here when we talk about the fruitfulness of the believer? Well, you know, we don't need to guess because we're given indications of what the fruit is in the passage itself. If you look in your Bible, verse 10 talks about obedience to Christ. If you look at verse 11, a fullness of joy, really a fullness of Christ provided joy will be one of the fruits. Verse 12 talks about love for other believers. And then verse 27, which we won't look at today, being a witness for Christ will be one of the fruits of the believer. So we can sum it up concisely like this. The believer's fruit will be the result of his entire life and ministry as he abides in Christ. A life that will properly reflect God's character. And what happens when you properly reflect God's character? You bring, you bring glory to him. Right? We also have 
Galatians 5, right? The fruit of the Spirit, which talks about, again, the fruitfulness of the believer that the the Spirit produces. So the quality of life present in a branch connected to the vine is so vastly different than one that is dead on the ground, and that seems to be Jesus' vivid point. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Branches that try to live apart from the vine might have an appearance of life for a season, but time will prove the reality that they're really dead. And so the punchline is clear, right? Uh, If we haven't learned that already, we are helpless apart from Christ. Well, let's look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, He is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. This is an elaboration on verse 2. But it describes the finality of God's judgment. Now, doesn't this remind you, and this is why I read this earlier, doesn't this remind you of Ezekiel 15, 1 to 8, the description given there, that passage You know, similar to Ezekiel's example, the vine that failed to produce fruit, its wood would be gathered up to serve as fuel for a fire. You know, fire is often used as a symbol in scripture for God's judgment. And though the analogy is not exactly the same because Uh, The vine in our passage is Jesus. Certainly the same idea is conveyed here. The picture of judgment upon those whose lives are worthless. The worthless ones in this context are those who aren't loyal to, who are not in fellowship with and obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the false professors, the ones who say they know Jesus, but are just outwardly religious. They will be thrown out as an old, good-for-nothing, withered branch. You don't throw into the fire that which is valuable. You only throw into the fire that which is useless, that which doesn't serve a purpose. By the way, if this language sounds familiar to you, this verb, thrown away, is used throughout the New Testament in judgment passages such as this one. I thought I would just give you a couple here. How about Revelation chapter 20, verse 15? And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was, what, thrown into the lake of fire. How about Matthew 13, 41 to 42? The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and what? Throw them into the fiery furnace in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are terrible verses, right? This this is a warning passage for all those who are in close proximity to Jesus but are not in a vital, living, abiding relationship with him, bearing fruit to God's glory. You know, Judas Iscariot looked like he was abiding in Christ until his character was tested. And then he proved to be a withered branch. But hey, listen, this certainly doesn't apply only to Judas. Does this describe any of you here this morning? Are any of you just going through the motions of Christianity, pretending that you belong when you're really living a double life? Are you just going along with the crowd, so to speak, but really you know in your heart you are not who you say you are? You know, in the past, uh, we've had members in our church who've served the Lord, who's gone on our missions trips, and seemed as if all was well, only later to deny the faith that they once confessed. Biblically speaking, we know that this isn't the case of a true Christian who suddenly deconstructed, right? It's someone who never knew Jesus Christ in the first place. You know, the same gospel writer said in his first epistle, 
in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. That's 1 John 2.19. Everlasting destruction in hell is the final destination for all false professors. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You know, in the last chapter... Uh, If you recall, Jesus said these words to his disciples in uh, chapter 14, verse 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Well, as you put this together, this is just another way of saying basically the same thing. But using the vine metaphor of abiding in Christ instead. Jesus has been discussing the concept of abiding in him. And now notice the added qualifier. And my words abide in you. This gives us a good idea of what abiding in Jesus looks like in real life. His words, meaning his commands, his teachings, will be an ever-present part of your daily life. Not something peripheral to your heart's pursuit. Christ's words will fill your mind so that you will desire to live for him. And this will also be reflected in your prayer life. Which means your prayers will be more about fulfilling God's will for your life and less about selfish pursuits. So because of a life that is conformed to Christ, whatever he asks in prayer will be consistent with the will of God and the name of God and therefore will be granted. You know, what is at the center of your um, heart's desire will be reflected in how you pray. Did you realize that? As you think about it, it, what becomes a gauge for your own, um, you know, um, spiritual uh, maturity um, is really listening to yourself pray. You might not notice it so easily uh, in yourself but you can more easily detect it in your kids' prayers. Selfish desires result in selfish prayers. Godly desires result in godly prayers. It's really a gauge for how you're doing. I think it's worth mentioning that not all Christians' prayers um, also are the same. You, You know, some Christians' prayers are more powerful than others. J.C. Ryle Uh, in his commentary, points this out. Listen to what he said here. He says, there are some Christians whose prayers are more powerful and effectual than those of others. The nearer a man lives to Christ and the closer his communion with him, the more effectual will his prayers be. The truth of the doctrine is so self-evident and reasonable that no one on reflection can deny it. He that lives nearest to Christ will always be the man that feels most and prays most earnestly and fervently and heartily. Common sense shows that such prayers are most likely to get answers. Many believers get little from God because they ask little or ask amiss. The holiest saints are the most earnest in prayer and they consequently get the most. You know, James chapter 5, verse 16, likewise makes the same point. You remember that? The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, right? By the way, as, as you listen to all this, as you, as you uh, think of the quote there, this is why it's an abuse to use verses like these in the way the prosperity gospel preachers um, have, you know, as a blank check to get from God whatever you want so that you can live large, right? Notice the conditional if part of the sentence is rather pivotal to the promise. And I hardly think greed as a motivator would fulfill the condition of the if here. Verse eight, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove 
to be my disciples. You know, Jesus establishes a close relationship between a fruitful life and true Christian discipleship. That is, bearing fruit is what both glorifies God and gives evidence that you are a child of God. Now, here again in John's gospel, do we see the inner Trinitarian dynamic on display. When a believer is abiding in Christ and his word, the the fruitfulness of his life is such that it brings glory to God the Father. Good works bring God glory because it puts the spotlight on God who is the source of their fruit. This is a, a Johannine theme, not only in this gospel, but in his epistles as well, that God the Father, again, the main player, the main actor here in this metaphor, God the Father is glorified through the worship and obedience to his Son. How do we give maximal glory to the Father? It's through the worship of his Son. Or to flip it around, when we focus our attention on bringing glory to Jesus, this will be the means by which we ultimately give glory to God the Father. So the right relationship to the Son is the only means to a right relationship to the Father. So looked at from another perspective, fruitfulness brings, uh, I'm sorry, fruitlessness brings about God's judgment, verse 6, because it robs God of his glory. All right. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You know, metaphors have their limitations. They, they can only convey truth up to a point, up to a certain point, and then that's about all they can do. It can't express the depth of what Jesus says here, and so he kind of drops it for just a second. But listen to what Jesus says. To the same degree that the Father loved Jesus is how much Jesus loves us. Wow. Can you imagine that? We actually can't imagine that uh, because we have no idea about the depth of that kind of inner Trinitarian love. How do the members in the Godhead love each other and to what extent? That's beyond us to even explain it. The Father's perfect, infinite love for his Son that stretches all the way back into eternity is the same love that the Son has towards his redeemed. That's crazy. You know, stop and ponder that for a moment and let the significance of that truth sink down into your heart. That that Trinitarian love amongst the members is the kind of love that Christ has for us. As believers, we celebrate the prominence of God's grace in Christ Jesus alone for our salvation. And yet, and we should, and yet this doesn't preclude the call to abide in my love. You know, there isn't a let go and let God ethic in the scripture. Far from it. Instead, we keep finding repeated calls like this to actively remain in fellowship with Christ and that it takes an act of our will to do so. And notice what the analogy is for abiding in Christ's love. Listen carefully, this is important. Christ kept his father's commands and therefore remained in his father's love. Christ's obedience to his father then becomes the model and the standard by which his followers are to imitate in relationship and our relationship to Jesus. Because in the same way we abide in Christ's love, uh, in the same way when we abide in Christ's love, is when we keep his commands. 
Now, does this mean that we either perfectly keep Christ's commands in the same way that Christ kept his father's commands or that we're going to be thrown into the fire and burned if we don't keep Christ's commands perfectly the way that he did in reference to his father? No, the standard is Christ's obedience to his father, not the requirement. Jesus is the flawless standard that we can never attain. And so Jesus is referring to the direction of our lives, not the perfection. Our lives at best will always be hindered by imperfect obedience. And so we, but, but we need to see the analogy there, right? By the way, there are some today that deny that Jesus had to obey his father before he ever came to earth in the incarnation. They, they say that he only had to obey in his humanity while he was here on earth, but not before that because he was an equal deity. And if you're an equal deity, you never have to obey your, or, or be in submission to your father. Do you realize that if you believe that, you essentially erase the basis for the son's love for his father in scripture? I want you to think about that. Jesus' love for his father is emphasized over and over again in this gospel by stressing the fact that he obeyed his father and that this obedience predates the incarnation. Think of all the sending passages when the father sent the son. Jesus just finished saying in John 14, 31, this, but I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that what? I love the Father. Do you think that's a timeless statement or one that's just true during the incarnation? Here's the thing. Try to find a passage in the Gospels where Jesus is said to love his Father apart from keeping his commandments. I'm not sure there is one. So let's be cautious about theorizing that the relationship between the father and the son is different in eternity past than it is as it's revealed in scripture. I think the way that it's revealed in scripture is the way that we should properly understand it. In fact, this leads us into Jesus's next remark. These things, verse 11, I have spoken unto you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Here's the importance of Jesus' obedience to his father. He connects it as the basis for his own, what? Joy. That his joy is directly caused by his relationship of obedience to his father. And then Jesus takes the next step and promises that those who obey him will likewise share the same fullness of joy that he has. Now, I want to read a quote to you here from D.A. Carson because he has a wonderful insight that's worth pondering here as it relates to this idea. But I, want to, I think it's worth really playing out here. He says, What is presupposed is that human joy in a fallen world will at best be ephemeral, shallow, incomplete, until human existence is overtaken by an experience of the love of God in Christ Jesus, the love for which we were created, a mutual love that issues in obedience without reserve. You know, this concept to an unbeliever would sound very strange, and maybe even some believers might think so as well, that joy comes through obedience But you know, this is a biblical truth. True joy doesn't come at the expense of our obedience. It comes as a direct result of our obedience to Jesus, our abiding in him. You know, the more you know Jesus, the more you grow in your love and devotion to him and desire from the heart to want to obey him, right? This is the dynamic of joy that will spring from your heart. Now, I'm not saying it's not demanding to obey Christ. But what I am saying is it's not a burdensome legalism. 
It's not just mere religiosity. It's something we want to do. It's something we desire to do because of who he is. And as we do, we feel the fullness of joy flood into our hearts and our lives. There is no greater joy possible than when we are abiding in Christ, even when pain or persecution is involved. And and just so we're clear, this isn't meant to be a superficial plug-and-play formula, just obey Jesus' commands and he'll automatically make you happy. No, this is the kind of obedience that is modeled in Jesus. Heartfelt obedience, motivated by love, For his heavenly father. Living like this. How God intended when he created us. Is what produces fullness of joy in in the believer's life. If that's not true for you. Then there's something wrong in how you're living. What what should you take away from this message? You have a God-given responsibility to abide in Christ. And as you do, God the Father will be active in pruning you so that you will bear much fruit. Look, if you aren't already doing so, actively filling your mind with God's word and allowing his thoughts to dictate your thoughts so that you will become more obedient to Christ uh, and consequently more joyful, um, then there's going to be a problem. Why aren't you finding fullness of joy in your life? Well, simply put, because you're not finding joy in the Lord's commands. You're looking for something more than that. Or wanting to use it as a means to an end. But not as an end in itself. You know, keeping Christ's commands isn't so that you can get rewarded with something you want. It's because you love Christ and you want to please him regardless of what he does or doesn't give you, right? So obedience to Christ is an end in itself and it's what produces real joy. And when you can think of that and understand that and internalize that and live like that and not use it as a give-to-get kind of scheme your heart will become far more joyful than it is. For those of you this morning who are just going through the motions and you know that you are not abiding in Christ, you know that you are not bearing fruit, this is a warning to you this morning. Don't kid yourself. If you aren't a believer, don't pretend that you are. As you can see, it won't end well for you. It's not too late to admit who you really are, to repent and put all your faith and energy in the vine, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will give you vitality and life so that you too will bear fruit for the kingdom.